While we're just sort of getting settled, let's take our Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 37. 37, right, you heard me correctly, because this is a different lesson today. We finished the life of Joseph last week, but I want to do something related to his life. And uh, as I say, while you're getting settled, let me just say this. I want to thank you for being a part of this class. Um, Really, for all of my years as a Christian, I have regarded it as an inestimable privilege to handle God's Word and to teach and preach God's Word. So, really, the great honor and privilege has been mine. And there's another saying that's sometimes widely quoted, that if you're the, you're the preacher or teacher doing the prep work and all of that, you tend to get more out of it than uh, the folks who listen. Not that you limit the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's just kind of a generalization I think sometimes proves to be true. And I have to tell you, I wanted to say this to you at the outset. Um, you know, we, we often quote that verse. I hope it doesn't become too familiar to us about the Word of God as living and powerful. Do you believe that? I'll tell you, it, there's nothing more fascinating than to see that truth lived out in your life. Because in regard to the Scripture, and I think I've mentioned this to you before, I've worked through all of this material here before, but... You know, in preparation for this class, I've just sort of looked at it as a new assignment. In fact, when I was in the ministry in Pennsylvania, I was there for nearly 30 years, and it was kind of an unspoken law of mine. I never preached the same sermon twice. Maybe on a rare occasion, if I had done something in a school chapel and felt that it was relevant enough to do on a broader base, I might do something like that. But never a Wednesday night or a Sunday Sunday day service sermon did I ever repeat. I might preach those sermons elsewhere, but not, not at our church. So the point is that in working through this for this particular series, I have to tell you, um, I just, I have been so blessed and found my own life so reinformed and differently informed because there are so many practical issues here that just touch on all of our lives. And I hope the class has proven to be that way for you. Uh, Last fall, when we were sort of discussing this in elders' meetings about Sunday school classes and so forth, and we were pondering this quarter, and I, I volunteered for this, but I, didn't, I volunteered for it because I had a burden for it. And I don't know why, really. Uh, I just had a burden for the life of Joseph. And um, for me, at least, God seems to have been in that. So we're in Genesis chapter 31, uh, 37, and let me read 10 verses here, 10 or 11, And then we'll read a couple from another chapter, and then we'll have prayer, and we'll get into today's lesson. So chapter 37, verse 18. They saw him from afar. So this is when Joseph is going to uh, check up on his brothers. And um, they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said one to another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, or a cistern. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. Remember, Reuben is the oldest, so he's going to be the one particularly held accountable here. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him 
that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to, their fa- to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. And this is the reason the writer gives us this detail. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So think of a cistern. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver which was the going rate for a young male slave. They took Joseph to Egypt. All right, so with that in mind, let's turn to chapter 42, where we're going to get a little commentary on what we've just read. That's what I'm particularly interested in. So turn to chapter 42, and let's read from verse 18 so we get a little feel of the context. So this, this... This setting now is later, and this setting, in fact, years later, and this setting is in the context of the the brother's first visit um, to Egypt, and they're before Joseph and don't realize this. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this, so this is chapter 42, verse 18, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, Let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Now notice this next verse in particular. And bear in mind, they're saying this not recognizing that Joseph can understand them because they're conversing in Hebrew. They said one to another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. I want you to think about this. Because guilt is something that just, you know, there's only one way to get rid of guilt. Did you know that? And even though this is an old sin, and even though it's a severe sin, here it is over 20 years later, and this guilt is still a force in their lives. And God the Holy Spirit is turning the screws of conviction down on them. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress. That's what I'm after. We saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, begged. And we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. So think about this. What goes around comes around or put differently. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap put someone in distress, and expect distress later in your life. And that's what we're seeing play out. You know, God's spiritual laws are inexorable. You cannot change them. You cannot get around them. You can't beat them. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we pray now that as we look into the Word of God and consider this final lesson on the life of Joseph, would you bless us? 
Lord only knows, you only know, what you have in mind for us today. Because there are the secret counsels of the heart, known only to us. That's where we pray that you will minister to us today. Meet our needs. There are folks that come with all sorts of needs that we have no idea what they are. So we pray whether it's encouragement, whether it's admonition, whether it's conviction, whether it's guidance, whatever it might be. Thank you that the Word of God is living and powerful and able to meet us today exactly where we are and, and to accomplish that purpose whereto you have sent it. Give me, Father, economy of speech as well as practicality and warmth and help me to communicate clearly, for I pray these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, I mentioned today as a bonus lesson, and I also mentioned last week when I told you about this, that, you know, there's no way in 12 weeks you can say everything that you might want to say about Joseph, so today is going to be kind of an example about this. And one of the things on your outline, if you want to take a look at this, is I tried to provide you after the fact, just so you sort of have a record of what's going on. If you look on the back, you'll find the whole 12 weeks and all the lesson titles. So then you kind of noticed last week we had a true man. This week we have a tender man. And that's the thing I really want to talk about today. Think about being tender. Is that wrong for a man to be tender? You know, I always made an observation that if you were in the funeral home business, of course, you know, I spent more than the average amount of time around that kind of thing as a pastor, but if you were in the funeral business, I always used to think to myself, you'd have to develop some mechanisms to kind of steel yourself to that. And I understand that, and it's not a criticism. You, you just about have to do that. But I always told the Lord, I don't ever want to go there. Every time I have to walk in here and deal with this situation, be with these people, meet with them, pray with them, talk to them, I want it to affect me. I want to be tender. I don't want to be like the funeral director in the sense that I've constantly got my guard up. And it's just a burden that I always had. So no, I don't think there's anything wrong with us being tender. In fact, I think that's something that we want to ask ourselves. Are we hard? That's the opposite of it. Because if we're hard spiritually, that's not a good thing. Tender is where we all really want to be, whether we're men or women. Now here's the thing. If you look at the record of the story of Joseph, you will find eight references to Joseph weeping. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I, you maybe have sort of noticed this as we've gone along, and I have made it a point, knowing that this lesson was coming at the end, that I did not want to take undue time or call undue attention to it, but we've noticed it. Time and again, we've noticed it. There are eight references, and they belong to six different scenes. And the ESV translates it wept. It's exactly how the King James translates it. So I want to cast you out something that's kind of uh, suggestive. Joseph wept. And all along, one of the things that we've talked about, and this is sort of to preview the conclusion, but all along we've talked about the fact that there are so many parallels between the life of Joseph and Christ. So I call your attention to a verse that you know and didn't even have to work to memorize. John eleven thirty five 35 says, Jesus wept. Isn't that interesting. To me, that's stunning. And it's stunning that, to me that the record would go out of its way to tell us eight times with reference to six different scenes, because 
If you count up the different scenes that we have in the life of Joseph, I mean, this is going to be way in the majority. When he's dealing with this situation and dealing with these people, he's, he's, he's anything but hard. He's incredibly tender, and it's manifested in his tears. I'll tell you that it tells us this eight times in six different scenes, but I'll tell you something. I don't think that's all. It's just all the record tells us. That's why I read what I did in the beginning, because I can't help but believe that that initial scene, when he was 17 years old, right from the very beginning, in those dealings with his brothers, here he goes out there and, and they stab a knife into his back. They betray him. Uh, their, their hatred, their animosity bubbles over, and they actually want to kill him. And They grab him, they strip away this special coat that his father made for him, they put him down into a cistern, and then they're so hard and so calloused that they sit down right there near it where undoubtedly he can hear them talking, and they eat. And they plot about the Midianite traders. Let's just sell him. That's Judah. He's not in a very good place at that stage in his journey. I have to think that there were tears there. It says in this verse, he was distressed. Chapter 42, verse 21. It says when they begged, when he begged them. Can't you imagine that there were tears there? Can't you imagine that during those years of imprisonment in Egypt, particularly when he was there for no good reason, I mean, after his brother stabbed him in the back, Mrs. Potiphar stabbed him in the back and he's in prison again. And after Mrs. Potiphar stabbed him in the back, the butler, the cupbearer, the chief butler stabbed him in the back and forgot him. I mean, after a while, you know, it just sort of gets to the place where you'd hate to think about looking at Joseph's back for all the knife wounds that were in it. Tears are kind of like death in a lot of ways. Think about this. Now, I suspect that each of us this morning has been fooled by tears. It is possible to misread them. In fact, when you get over to the New Testament, Paul tells us about something that I find really interesting, and it's, I, I would say it's something you have to be aware of and watch for, that there is the sorrow of the world. And there is godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And I'm sure you've seen these situations. I know I've seen them. I've seen them when people have come forward at church. I've seen them on lots of occasions where there are tears, and the tears speak of emotion. And the emotion tends to make us think that people are genuine, and most of the time they are, but not always. Sometimes it's surface. Sometimes it's not genuine, but... After the fact, when you see this, it still doesn't change the truth of what I'm saying. They were revealing. And oftentimes, they are revealing in a good way. It's a time when people are tender. It's a time when they're very much affected by emotion. And so you have to kind of be careful not to take advantage of that, because sometimes when people are affected by emotion, they're vulnerable. And it's not fair to take undue advantage of them during those times, unless you're seeking to promote godliness and good. Well. I'm going to bring to you three insights that I think these tears in the life of Joseph reveal, all based around the fact that he was tender. The first thing that I see is I think this really speaks to Joseph's commitment. 
You'll see why in a moment, but we're talking now about the first five references, and I have them all there for you. So if you count that up, there's three in the last part. That's all a part of one scene. So we have five references in three scenes, and it's interesting. If, if you're trying to organize this, if you're looking at this generally, you can draw this two observations I point out from the beginning. First of all, all of these first ones that we're looking at, they involve his brothers. The people had stabbed him in the back. They involve his brothers. But if you look at them specifically, they speak of a lot of different insights that all go to this idea that I want to develop for you. First of all, if we look at 4224, we were there reading in that context. And had we let a little bit, read a little bit further, which we're going to do right now, Reuben says to them, this is in verse uh, 22, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen, so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. To me, this speaks of compassion over the discomfort that, and over the guilt that they were experiencing. Yes, they deserved to feel that way. But you know, guilt is a nasty thing. We've all been there. And I've made the observation before, you know, there's nothing in the world more ornery than a Christian under conviction. But to see someone experiencing, experiencing that, it, you just, your heart goes out to them. You kind of, it's almost like it melts you. I mean, I've seen people broken before over sin. I'm sure we felt brokenness in our own lives over sin before. And... You know, you can identify with the person. They're going through a, a difficult moment when the Spirit of God is, is just tearing them up over this sin. It, it, it's, it's uncomfortable, but it's necessary. And then, let's shift to the next one. Joy over seeing Benjamin for the first time. How about this? Let's take a look at chapter 43, verse 30. Different scene, still involving his brothers. We'll read verse 29, and he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. So he doesn't wait for them to answer the question. He already knows who it is. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered into his chamber and wept there. I just want you to try to get into this. I want you to remember that when he last saw his brother, he was 17 years old, and he's 32 now. So, 22 years have passed. This is the second year of famine. So, he was 17 when he went there. There was 13 before he stood before Pharaoh at 30. He was 37, I, I got the math wrong, but the other's right. He was 37 at the end of the good years, and 39 on this particular occasion right here, and you subtract 17 from 39 and you have 22. So what has he missed? Well, if he was 17 and Benjamin was his younger brother, you can postulate that Benjamin might have been somewhere around, hmm, probably under 15. 
maybe 12, 13, 14, somewhere in there. We don't know exactly because the record doesn't quite tell us that. You can kind of read into it a little bit from the birth of the children and how, how that's presented in the progression of all of this. What's that mean? That means he's effectively missed this whole, his brother's whole, almost his whole teenage years, his 20s, when he became a young adult. He's probably married at this point. He missed that. I guess you say better late than never, but can you imagine the overwhelming flood of joy that cascades through him? It's no wonder he had to hurry out. It's no wonder he, he was in tears over this moment of reunion. Thirdly, release. So we get to chapter 45, and this is the, this is the third, it's the second visit, but it's the third confrontation, so to speak. They've had to come back now because the servant runs them down, catches them with the silver cup in Benjamin's sack, remember this? And then this follows right on the heels of this moving, this incredible confession on the part of Judah. It would move anybody to tears. Then Joseph, verse 1, could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And now there's a detail in this next verse that you don't have anywhere else. It says, and he wept aloud. That word aloud. This was, this was Joseph weeping, but this wasn't the normal Joseph weeping. This was so noticeable. It was so loud that it couldn't be concealed. And I don't think it means by telling us here that Pharaoh's household heard of it. I don't think it means they heard it in the next house. I think it means that it was so noticeable by the people who were around, the people that he told to go out and so forth, that it didn't take very long for this to travel around, and especially when it traveled around why he was so overcome. His brothers were here. Pharaoh gets in on the deal. I mean, Pharaoh's all juiced up with the thing himself, but can you imagine? Just as it was true that the guilt never went away from those brothers, that it was a heavy burden to bear all those years, so the heartache on the part of Joseph to see reconciliation and forgiveness and reunion and to see his family again, it just all bursts forth like an earthen dam that gives way behind the pressure of water. And then later in the chapter, when we come down to verses 14 and 15, there are two references there. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. So there's one reference. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. In verse 15, he kissed all his brothers, and there's the next reference, wept upon them. This is incredible gratitude, tears of gratitude. We already used the word joy, but they sort of merge over what God has done. And he's told them, I put those verses in there for you again. This is the first time he talks about this. The quintessential statement of God's providential dealings is in chapter 50. But he says, you know, you meant it for evil but God. You meant it for evil but God. God meant it for good. And, and, and this is the empowering truth that gets him through all of this. So looking at those particular occasions and making it this observation and then looking at them together, what's all this? If you bundle those things that we just looked at. What's, what do you really come up with? Well, to me, here's at least one observation. I'm not saying that I'm exhausting this, but to me, this really speaks of somebody who's committed. I mean, it, 
when you think of tough love, see that phrase, it's not original with me, of course, but sometimes you think about that and you say to yourself, is that an oxymoron? Do those two words really go together, tough love? And the truth of the matter is, yeah, they go together. In fact, if they don't go together, something's probably not right. Because when you look at the Bible, and everybody's heard this before, you look, about, you look at the words in the New Testament for love, and we know about the phileo love, and we know about the agape love, and we, we all, all the time hear these distinctions that the agape love is the highest form. Yes and no. I mean, it's the highest form in this sense. There's nothing wrong with phileo love. It's the love of friends. The word philema in Greek is a kiss. And so philosophers love. It's the love of friends. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. I mean, in, in its own context, philos love is, is a good love. It's, it's the love with emotions and all of that. We need that in life. But the reason that we tend to elevate this agape love is because this is the love of a decision. This is the love of the will. This is when you determine that you love someone so much that you're willing to risk their displeasure, even their discomfort, always to do what you believe is in their best interest. And if you think about that, it is exactly how God loves us. I mean, looked at in our sin, we are revolting to God. Is that not true? It is true. I mean, there's, there's not that affection because there's that disruption and there's that barrier that exists. So the phileo love is kind of de-emphasized. It's God choosing. It's God choosing to love us in spite of ourselves. It's God choosing to act in our best interest, which was to send his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross of Calvary, and which was ultimately to visit us just like he visited these brothers with the ever-tightening conviction of the Holy Spirit, however uncomfortable it was until one day we saw ourselves exactly as we are, and it led us to flee to the cross. That's what this is. The reason I have to say this is there's a contrast here. There, if, if in that first scene, when they don't understand, know that he understands them, and he's weeping because he's so overcome with emotion, think about how easy it would have been for him to give way to his emotion. That would have been a weakness on his part. But think how easy it would have been a way to, to capitulate to that emotion and just in the moment to be caught up in it and say, I'm Joseph. but it wasn't the right time. They weren't ready. And so he just remains absolutely committed. You think about this, we don't really have time to deal with this again, but there's that Psalm 105 again. This is one of the lessons that God was teaching him through all those years, was waiting on God, waiting on God's time. One of the reasons that the, I mean, the butler stabbed him in the back, but God was in that because it wasn't time. There were two more years before Pharaoh was going to have his dream. And all of these things, as he, as he went through these difficult circumstances, he just became convinced. And you look at this verse 19, until he was in these trials, it says, until what he said, that is God said, came to pass. That God had told him about in the dreams all before. And I love the way the King James words this, until the time that his word came. The word of the Lord tested him. You know, folks, that one of the hardest things in life is to wait on God's time. You can have something that you know is right, but it's just not God's time. 
all you have to do is think back to so many experiences in your life. So this is a commitment to do right by the people you love. And I'm going to tell you right now, it isn't easy. They'll fight you sometimes. They'll pout. They'll put up a fuss. They'll accuse you of being unkind, unloving, unfair. So you can expect some tears. Love that way anyway. Joseph's care, that's the second insight I have. So these next two references are with regard to his father. And you have two scenes. Let's look at the first, chapter 46, verse 29. This also is a reunion. Chapter 46, verse 29, the Bible tells us this. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. I want you to think about something. And I, I know, you know, you have a, a crowd of people. You never quite know what people's experiences are. And I don't know, when you think back to your father, what you think. I mean, it may have been a, not a good experience. It's sad that sometimes we have to acknowledge that. None of our dads were perfect, were they? But I was blessed. I mean, when we were growing up, we had a nominal Christian home. By that I mean we went to church. That was just how we were raised. But we weren't going to a gospel preaching church, so nobody really, I mean, you know, you learned the catechism in Sunday school, and there were some older godly people in the church that you might have caught it from. That's actually how my mother got saved. An older godly woman in that church that really knew the Lord, but by and large, they didn't preach the gospel in that church. It was what we would call apostate. But you heard moralizing, and you could, you could look at the, the catechism and learn these things. But you can't miss in all of this how caring Joseph was. My dad, I mean, you know, he was not a perfect individual. But the values that we were taught growing up, I mean, he was a Marine, for one thing. And so we were brought up with good values and firm discipline and all of that kind of thing. But you know, when you're in the process, you don't quite realize what you have, do you? In fact, you don't always appreciate what you have because you don't quite understand your father. And because you haven't been there. And why does he say certain things? Why does he do certain things? Why does he take this firm stand on certain things? I remember, it's easier for me to tell this, I remember when the day came that my brother, my dad told my brother, you have to leave. You don't think that's tough love? Both of us turned out to be pastors, so don't worry about it. There is a story in the New Testament where a boy left, Right? parable of the prodigal son. Daddy didn't go out there and say, oh, please don't go. He said, yeah, this is, these are the rules. If you don't like it, we'll see you on the flip-flop. See you later. Gave him his portion of his inheritance, knowing he was going to squander it, knowing he was going to just make a ruin of his life, but knowing he had to let him go. It takes a lot of wisdom to figure that out, especially when you're not even saved. So in this first scene come tears of love. I mean, 
I said all that to say this. Joseph and his father had always been close. I mean, Joseph was the first child that his beloved Rachel bore to him, and she only bore two, and she died when Benjamin was born. But she was the love of his life. Now, I know he played favorites, and, you know, you talk all day long about Leah got the short end of the stick. I agree with you. It's not good. I'm not promoting that. But I'm just saying, he, he met that girl and fell in love with her from day one. And he, I, I guess he just couldn't help himself. It wasn't the smartest parenting in the world to show all that favoritism, but he dearly loved this boy. And they had a close relationship to the extent that it was probably unwise that he displayed that with that coat of many colors and it engendered that belligerence and animosity with his brothers and all those different things that we've talked about. We went through the story, but again, they've been separated for all this time. Think about that, what it would mean not to see your father for 22 years. I was 41 when my dad passed away. I was in the ministry. And believe me, I found myself from time to time in the thick of some deep waters. Nobody in the ministry doesn't. But there was always a certain, have you thought about this, there was always a certain security that if I really needed to talk to somebody away from the scene that I trusted had good judgment and good wisdom, I could always pick the phone up until that day when my brother called me and told me, Tom, Dad's dead. I couldn't do that anymore. And for the first time in my life, I didn't have my dad. And you know something, when you get out there in life, and that's what reflects itself in this next scene, chapter 50, verse 1, where it's Jacob's time. Jacob is gone. Then Joseph, verse 1, says, fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Those are tears of loss. How caring he is, how loving, how caring. You only have one dad. Nothing can take the place of him. This is a caring individual. Well, time still marches on. I said it at the beginning. Then there's Joseph's care. And you can use some of these words several times here, but you can't miss how caring he was either. Uh, we backed, I hit the wrong button. Sorry about that. Joseph's character. You can't miss this either. Here's our last thing. Last scene in the last scene, final reference, chapter 50, verse 17. Let's have a quick look. Remember, this is what we talked about. Last week, the brothers come, or the week before. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers. This is purportedly coming from Jacob. They're quoting this. Their sin because they did evil to you, and now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept. So what is this, folks? In this final scene, we're back to the brothers. And one would have hoped they would have made more progress than that. These are tears of hurt. How could he not help but be hurt? After 17 years, after seeing them safely ushered into the land of Goshen, the choice place, especially for shepherds, whom the Egyptians sort of kept at arm's length, 
after being sure that they were nourished and kept through those years of famine, after looking after them, some of the details of that we have, most we don't. But after all that, they still don't seem to really know him. They still don't seem to really trust him. They're still worried. I mean, like I told you, guilt is done away when we confess our sins, but you know, sometimes it's hard to live in the light of that. Sometimes you've just got things that are so deep and so powerful that you've done in your own life that you still have to struggle with that even years later, even when you know you've been forgiven, it comes back. And you have to keep telling yourself, no, that's under the blood. No, I've been forgiven for that. Go away, Satan. These guys still don't seem to know him, and because they don't seem to know him, they misjudge him. They think that, oh, you know, maybe he's been putting on a veneer all this time. Maybe he's ready now that Joseph or Jacob is off the scene. Maybe he'll, the other shoe will drop. He'll lower the boom on us now. I mean, is there any hint of that in the, in, the, in the life and character of Joseph? No, there's no hint of that. They just knew themselves all too well. They knew what they were like is the problem. But they judge him through a wrong lens, don't they? And if you believe this story, and I told you last week, there's some people who think it's fictitious. I don't mean it's fictitious that it shouldn't be in the text. It's obviously not fictitious in that sense. I mean, some people think they made this up. Whether you agree with that or not, if you take it for what it is at face value, and let's say that it really happened, then think about this, they went behind his back. They went behind his back. Instead of just coming to him with their concerns, they go to Jacob and try to hide behind Jacob, who's now dead. Talk about weakness in character. But my question to you is this, you know something? Have you ever been judged by shallow judgment? By people lacking in genuine discernment and spirituality, criticized by those people, mischaracterized by those people, and even had them go behind your back? You don't have to nod your head because if you've been around, you have. Especially if you've been around Christian service. And I hate to say it, it pains me to say it, but if you've been around church, you have. It's a sad commentary that it happens so much. We ought to know better. It hurts when people do that. I don't know why. Well, maybe I do, but as I was thinking about this, I thought back years ago. This would probably have been in the early to mid-90s. But I can remember it. You know, it's strange how memory works. I couldn't tell you some things about last week, but I can tell you things about 30 years ago, like they happened yesterday. But I remember, and I was, I had sort of prayed about what was the next step for us to take in respect to our missionaries. Our church really had a good mission spirit. My predecessor had done a fantastic job. We had an aggressive missions budget. And I thought, well, I want to continue the good work, but God brought me here to do something. So I presented in a deacon meeting on one occasion four reasons to the deacons why I felt that we should start taking missions trips. 
And I knew better than to ask people in the church to start if I wasn't willing to be an example. So I said, you know, let me start taking, visiting our missionaries. I gave them four reasons. Well, it didn't take too long for them to figure there's something here to this. So I, I had kind of birthed that vision, if you will, for our church. And I don't remember if it was the first trip or a second or third one. I don't really remember, but probably towards the very beginning. It came the end of a, a Lord's Day, and so the end of Sunday, and I was going back after the service down the hallway to my office. There was a lectern there where we met for visitation about 10 feet from my door. I walked by it. We had a deacon meeting scheduled for the next day. That, that was announced. People knew that. And here's this envelope on the lectern. And it says, to the deacons. Well, you know, in our church and constitutionally in our church, the pastor is an ex officio member of every committee. Plus it charged me with the spiritual leadership of the deacons. So I opened the letter. I was going to have to show it to him anyway. What's the big deal? And it was just, it reeked of criticism. Why do we have to send the pastor on this trip? Why are we spending this money? Blah, 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 on and on it went. Did it hurt? Yeah, it hurt. I can't tell you this is right in every instance what I did next, but I felt led of the Lord. I just took it to the pulpit the next Sunday night and read it. The letter was anonymous. The letter was unsigned. Did you know, if you look in the hymn book, that probably the most prolific writer of hymns is Mr. Anonymous? And second to that comes Mr. Unknown. But you know, sometimes there are good reasons why people do this. I'm sure the writer of the hymn just, it was a way to maintain humility. But sometimes it's not good. Sometimes it's people that just don't have courage. Sometimes it's just a manifestation of weak character. So there are times when it's justified and times when maybe it's probably the right thing to do and times when it just exposes a weakness in character. That was a weakness in character. That was a shallow mischaracterization, a shallow judgment, and it didn't come to the source. It just went behind my back. So when I read it, the next service, I didn't read it with any malice. I read it with kind of a broken heart and just explained, so here's the reasons for this. Here's why we're doing this. I never did figure out who wrote that note. Don't need to know. But never heard from them again either. So it's sad, isn't it, folks, that so much of this goes on in Christianity? But you know, even though you'll at times be misjudged, and even though you'll be mischaracterized by shallow, undiscerning, carnal Christians, hang in there anyway. Still be a person of character because God sees the heart. That's the one consolation you have. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, for the Lord sees, not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You know something? After about the first two of those, we, it became a thing. Nobody ever questioned that again. It was a thing, you know. And finally, I got lay people to start doing it. Believe this or not, we had... A woman and her husband that lived from a rural community about six miles away that went to our church, her family and her kids. Kids were in our school. 
They were very close to some missionaries that we supported in Africa. I never will forget the day came she said, we're going to Africa. I said, praise the Lord. More power to it. You go over there and give them our best and tell them. It just amazed me how nobody ever questioned it. So Joseph's tears reveal a tenderness in a man who otherwise was like tempered steel. Why do I use that illustration? Real quickly, because I have to close, because you know what tempered steel is. You have steel. It's already steel. The raw material's there. You can't carve in rotten wood. So character has to already be there. But the material's there in Joseph. It just needs to be tempered. So you, if it's a knife or something like that that you already own and it's untempered steel, you can take like a hand torch and just heat this thing up until it's red hot. Then you plunge it in either water or oil. And then when it's cooled sufficiently, then you put it, if, if, if whatever you have will take the oven, if the handle of the knife will take the oven, you put it in there at about 400 degrees for a while, then you let it cool. That steel has to go through quite a process to become tempered, doesn't it? And here we are, back to Jesus, the Garden of Gethsemane in tears. In fact, how many occasions did Jesus shed tears? Don't know. We do know this, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And one of the most eloquent verses in the Bible, when Jesus gathered around those people whose loved one was snatched away in death, it says he wept. Tough as nails, but tender. And maybe we just take this as something away from the lesson today. Just remember, you're going to need a heart that's tender and a hide that's tough. Lord, bless us as we go into our next service, and thank you for the good attention of the people today. Let something that was here be said that was useful and that you could bless. And if anything was said that didn't help or was unneeded, let that just blow life away like the chaff by the wind. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.